You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. So today's podcast is with Eric Potterat and Alan Eagle. Uh, Eric is a clinical and performance psychologist and a leading expert in individual and organizational performance optimization. Um, Eric retired as a commander from the U.S. Navy after 20 years of service during which he helped create the mental toughness curriculum used during Navy SEALs BUDS training. He also worked with sports teams, with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Miami Heat, and Olympic athletes. Fascinating dude. And Alan Eagle is an author and executive communications consultant, helping leaders and companies shape and tell their stories. And he spent 16 years at Google, partnering with executives to communicate the company's story to clients, partners, employees, and the public. And he's the co-author of, of, of several books. Their new book is called Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Eric and Alan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Pleasure early, to be here, yes. Thanks so much. Early in the book, you make the point that, quote, we are all performers, end quote. And I'd like to unpack that a bit more because if you look at the three of us, we come from what one might consider wildly different backgrounds. I mean, Navy SEALs, Google, and Second City. Uh, but in fact, all three of those entities live and die by the great performances of the people within it. Um, I think that's how, how, how we see it, and I think that's how you see it. So I'm just sort of curious as you enter this conversation, you know, I think a lot of what you talk about the, in the book and the reason you wrote it is this stuff that you're talking about is germane for all people, all organizations, all teams. Uh, and Eric, I'll start, start with you on that. Yeah, so let, let me just clarify. I, I'm not a Navy SEAL. I was their yeah. psychologist for, yeah. for 10 of my 20 years in the Navy. So just, just to put that, that out there first. And I'm not an improviser, though I work at the Second City. <laughs> got it, got it. So, so I think, look, the heart of your question and, and why Alan and I, I think tackled this book together is I've spent 30 years of my career working with about 25,000 of the world's greatest performers in their vertical. And and at the end of the day, it's great to work with these extremely high performers, but I was able to kind of read the, the tea leaves or follow the breadcrumbs, as it were. And I had a, a bit of an epiphany that regardless of the vertical that these elite performers were working in, they generally were doing the same things. And the book kind of consolidates that. But the overall thesis, and to the crux of your question, is I, I really, my goal is to continually move people away from the narrative if I can never do what he or she is doing. So mm -hmm. I think at some level, I don't care what you do for a living, where you live, 
you, we're, we're all performing at some level, right? Whether it's a secretary, a Starbucks barista, a neurosurgeon, and what can we learn from each other and, and kind of apply actionably to our lives. So, Yeah, and when I, Eric and I started working on this book about three, three and a half years ago, and he kept using the phrase above the neck and between the ears. And we, we tried to work that into the title, but it's a bit of a mouthful. But you know, it's really, that's, that's what performance is about, is how you approach it above the neck and between the ears. And I would have said, you know, when we first started this, uh, I'm not a performer, I'm not on stage, or I'm not in a military battle. But in fact, this is our thesis, we all perform. Uh, if you're a student, you take a test. Uh, if you're in a job, you give a presentation. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're into romance, you go on a date. These are all performances. And you can improve your performance. You can up your game in every one of them by focusing on what's above the neck and between the ears. Yeah. And so uh, uh, you say in the book, quote, unfortunately, amid all the training and preparation, we tend to ignore the most important component of high performance, the mental aspect. We train everything but our minds. And when the moment arrives, that's what often betrays us. Um, and I guess this is this is the same thing as when I'm talking to folks in the behavioral science community um, who are like, there's an aspect of fake it till you make it that's science as well. So talk to us a bit about like what, what is it about the, the mental aspect that allows someone to uh, per, uh, pursue learned excellence? Yeah, I, I think the metaphor I really like here is, is also unpacked in the book, the hardware software metaphor mm -hmm. and the computer right. metaphor. Yep. I think we as we within society have really focused a lot on kind of the hardware, the physicality, strength and conditioning, nutrition, et cetera. When, when at the end of the day, I think one of the untapped horizons or one of the untapped verticals, it really is the, the, the mental side, as you say. I, I think the software piece makes everything else work. I think when we look at our computers or we you know, look at our smartphones, for example, we're often given the reminder, hey, it's time to, to update your operating system or to, to update your app. And I think I, I really, we really like this, this metaphor, this analogy a lot. And, and we invite the reader to think about, Hey, what are, what are we doing? What are you doing to, to really double and triple down on again, what's above the neck and between the ears? And there are some evidence based tactics and, and actionable things that I think we've learned from the world's best that can be applied everywhere. So, and Alan, I'm curious for you with regard, you've been at this for three years, but you have, You've written other books, and you've, you've you know you, you've helped people on this journey. What was new to you with regard to Eric's past and his his work uh, that found its way into this book that maybe wasn't in other books you wrote? Well, again, the concept that we're all performers, and then just the way that we talk about these mental disciplines that every performer pursues, and we we try to make it as practicable as possible. And I just had never thought of things that way. Just simple things like whether it's deep breathing or visualization or self-talk or establishing your values. These are all really simple things. It's not hard. It's accessible to everybody. And, you know, what was new to me was like, you know, I, I'm born and raised here in Silicon Valley. I worked in the Valley for my entire career, uh, surrounded by stupendous people and stupendous performers. And there's a bit of this... Uh, imposter syndrome creeps in, you know, or I, I can't do that. I mean, they're so smart or they're such good athletes. Uh, I can't do that. And in fact, 
you, you know, what this is about is that, yeah, pretty much you can, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to dunk a basketball mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, teach a course in neuroscience, but pretty much all the stuff that you want to do that you can, you know, to, to up level your game, it's all within your reach. Mm. Uh, all right, Eric, uh, chapter two really talks about your background. And so you completed your PhD in clinical psychology in 1996. What, like, how does this get you into the Navy? This does not feel like a, a, a path that is... Um, uh, <laughs> That's a great question. Someone tell me how that happened. No, in yes. all seriousness, I had a professor uh, late in my PhD program. Uh, w- within a PhD program, in order to get a state license, you, one needs to do, similar to uh, in the medical track, they call it a residency, we call it an internship. So you have to do an internship. Um, and one of my professors had, had reached out saying, hey, you might consider what the military has to offer with respect to their internship. And then they have a three-year obligated payback uh, service time. So I went to a few open houses. I went to the Air Force. I went to the Navy. I'd already been accepted uh, to a few kind of traditional academic programs for an internship. And and frankly, I went at the pleasure of or, or with the mindset of just kind of I'll keep an open mind. I was frankly blown away. Um mm-hmm blown away enough to to really say no to a lot of more prestigious on paper programs and um, what the Navy had to offer a young clinician as far as training. The breadth of experience was amazing, inpatient, outpatient, operational, uh, but then to be able to get backseat qualified in F-18s and go on ships and carrier landings. And I really felt like the value, the impact, the relevance of that work really was a dog whistle I was listening to more. Um, did I think I would stay in for a career? Heck no. I thought I would do the, in- the internship and the three-year payback, but it got better after every tour. So, And I, I know you said you're not a Navy SEAL, of course, but you did some Navy SEAL training. Uh, not Navy SEAL. I, I was the psychologist at Bud's training. I did SEER training. So, so yeah, tell, tell us about the SEER training because that, yeah, that sounds hellish. Yeah. So you learn how to survive captivity and evade and, and you know land navigation, celestial navigation, food procurement, water procurement, all of that, and desert training and marksmanship, all, all of the fundamental. But these guys, Navy SEALs, are <laughs> echelons ahead in their training. Let's put it that way. So. Oh, oh, come on, Eric. We were um, One of the people we interviewed was Katie Stanville, who was, a, uh, I think, a naval helicopter officer, a helicopter pilot, and she talked about the, the helo dunker. And then we had done this interview, and I'm, like, just so impressed. And mm-hmm. then Eric says, yeah, yeah, it was pretty hard. I what? Yeah, yeah, I did it. You had to do it. It's like, okay, Eric. Yeah, yeah. He's being all humble here, but he, he went through some stuff. Yeah. Fun times. Fun times. Uh, and, Alan, so I'm sure you're collecting stories, right? You know, and, and, and some of them show up in terms of clients that Eric's work, worked with. And we're talking every, everyone from, like, the U, U.S. Women's National Soccer Team uh, to Olympian Nathan Chen uh, to a competitive cliff diver so do you do you have a favorite in terms of one of these stories that that sort of illustrates the the, the sort of living examples of of uh, uh this work well you know eric and i started working on this book in uh, spring of 2020 he came and gave a talk at google it was a virtual talk mm-hmm. uh and i worked at google at the time and um so we afterwards i approached him and we agreed to get to work on this and he talked about all these people he had worked with and so i flew down to san diego one day and spent the whole day we just talked all day uh just about ideas and what the book would be like and and at some point along the way he said well maybe we should interview some of these people and i I thought that sounded like fun um for my previous book trillion dollar coach we interviewed over 80 people and it was really fun um 
but the, then the lists of people, the names of people that he said, yeah, we should talk to Eric Spolstra, who's the coach of the <laughs> yes, Miami please. Heat. Like, yeah, Eric. Yeah, sure. Let's yeah, let's give let's give Eric Spolstra a call. Uh, you know, how about Carly Lloyd, uh, the greatest women's one of the greatest women's soccer players of all time? Yeah, Eric. Sure, let's do that. So, I mean, it was just such a treat. Um, but then we, you know, we'd speak to a lot of people who were, you know, maybe not as famous. Um, uh, you know, Dina Ryerson, who's an attorney general in Oregon, and just people that have got really amazing and intense jobs. And, you know, their lessons of performance apply just to them just as much. So, uh, but I am a sports fan. So I've had to actually, if I had to pick a favorite, we talked to Nathan Chen not long yeah. after he won the, the Olympic gold medal in the 2022 Beijing Olympics. And I had such a good time watching that finals competition because I was watching it live on TV and I was texting with Eric. And Eric was saying, yeah, I'm texting with Nathan right now, like right before the warm-ups. And so I'm sitting there with my wife going like, oh, my God, like we're kind of watching Nathan and he's texting with Eric right now. So that was a pretty heady experience. I thought it was, and again, I've worked in comedy my entire life, and and while there is a lot more um, evidence and science on improvisation, which is how we make our comedy, um, I'm married to a tenured professor of comedy, so there's also, you know, that world. And one of the things you mentioned about Nathan in terms of knowing that he was ready was you were watching, I think, on TV, and you saw him and his prep laughing. And what, and I've talked about this with my therapist a bunch, which is like, it is very hard to be in your fear brain when you're laughing. 100%. Yeah. I mean, we look uh, to this day. And again, I am always cautious about favorites per se, but I, we, we talked about it in the book as well. I think in my 30 years and thousands of athletes, thousands of performers outside of the military and first responders that I've seen do incredibly heroic things, Nathan short performance Mm-hmm. is the best human performance I've ever seen, bar none, outside of the military, outside of, uh, you know, first responders. That said, you know, there was a lot of work. Obviously, you know, you can read his book, a fantastic book that, that came out last year. Um, you know, he was the favorite in the Olympics prior to that and had fallen. And, you know, to to go, the, the, the pressure behind what he did still is humbling to me, to sit back as, you know, his mental performance coach and watch what he did in front of over a billion people in his mother's home country during COVID, maybe the Chinese and American political tensions, um, et cetera, et cetera. And to do what he did on essentially blades, um, you know, so it came down to really controlling self-talk and visualizing. And one of the tactics that we, you know, keep it simple, stupid, right? One of the tactics we said is, as you start to think about these things, what your body does, the mind will follow. So when you force laughter, you force smiling. It's very difficult to be stressed as well. So this is the first Olympics, I think he said as well, that he, that he had fun doing what he did. Uh-huh. Yeah, and great- Eric, I think that's part of, that was our conversation with him and part of your conversation with him is, Remember why you love skating. Go back to when you were a little kid, and you know he he was inspired when the when the Olympics were in his hometown, Salt Lake City, and uh, you know that's when again when I saw him and during the warmups and kind of smiling and having fun, and everyone else in the in that green room, they're all going through their they're yeah. visualizing their routine, mm-hmm. but like you had helped him connect to like oh yeah this is fun I like this. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it, so that that's was was um, I mean, that was one of my favorite stories from our putting together the book. 
And you mentioned this, Alan, too, and, and this has come up in, in a number of podcasts. So I'm talking about trauma experts. I'm talking about um, executives and scientists. Um, one of those things is breathing. Uh, and uh, this may seem simplistic uh, and, and, and simple. In some, some regards, it, it is, I guess. But this idea of regulating uh, yourself. And, and, and again, so, so you know, in our field of improvisation, when someone's coming in for their first class, we're almost all doing meditative exercises because what we explain to them is you can't, you cannot be in judgment of self or judgment of others to be a creative individual and to improvise well. You have to take the focus off yourself and put it on, on your, your partner. You got to make your partner look good. All these sort of lovely sort of pro-social things. But a lot of that starts with, with you know, things like box breaths. So, so talk about, and this is for both of you in terms of like that, that, that idea of why is this so important, this, this sort of controlling of your breath. So, so we know that when the human being is in high pressure situation, or let's let's say leveraged, whether it's an improv situation or a sporting event with sixty thousand fans or a complex surgery, we know a few things that human stress response will start: vasoconstriction, rapid shallow breathing, and breaths generally go from anywhere from sixteen to twenty or or more breaths per minute. So it becomes very rapid, very shallow. We won't even talk about the physiology and the anatomy of what's happening for muscle tension and blood migration and all of that. Fundamentally, though, one of the quickest ways to reverse that stress response outside of taking Valium or some you know medications are to really control diaphragmatic breathing. So the, the, the technique that we unpack in the book is what we call the theory of fours. It's a four-second inhale, a slightly longer exhale. Um, personally, Outside of maybe two to three controlled studies that recently came out, I'm not a fan of box breathing. And again, okay. I, we can get, uh, we can do some thumb wrestling or some you know academic wrestling with those who believe it. I'm mm -hmm. not saying the science isn't there; it hasn't been there until recently. Mm -hmm. uh, my issue with box breathing is I don't know of an organism on the planet that holds their breath to de-stress, and that's one of the fundamental tenets of box breathing. Right? Breathe yeah. in, hold. So in this case, it's just a natural four-second inhalation, natural pause at the top, uh -huh. and then a slightly longer exhale. The good thing, and then I'll let Alan hit this, the good thing about breathing is we know it physiologically reverses the stress response, number one. A positive byproduct, number two of this, is that when people focus inwardly, as you say, to the thing that they have the utmost control over, which is their breath, it takes their mental focus away from the stressor. Those 60,000 fans, the complex surgery, the improv, whatever it may be. So it really serves two purposes. One, to reverse the stress response. And two, this is where I have control and I control this and no one else does. So, Alan, do you use that? Have you, I mean, do you do breath work? I, I try because it's one of the things that we, you know, we talked to 30 odd, you know, 30 plus people. And I think almost every single one of them talked about breathing. Um, we talked to the former chief of police from Reno, Steve Pitts, and he would talk about when he was going to go meet the family of a fallen or injured officer, he'd pull over to the side of the road, take a minute and do his breathing. Uh, Marcus Luttrell, the famed, you know, the, the lone survivor, the Navy SEAL upon whom upon whom the Lone Survivor movie was based, talked about in the middle of the battle, he would stop, he stopped and breathed to regain his composure. So it's just an incredibly powerful tool. And wow. the two insights, you know, we were in the middle of all this and Eric said, yeah, it's sort of like taking Valium. And I was like, what? 
what? And it, it's literally true. It's the physically the closest you can get to taking Valium. And then the other aspect of just regaining control. So yeah, it's, in, it's incredibly powerful. The other and, thing uh, I'll I, add... I have, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, go, go ahead. No, please go ahead, Eric. The other thing I'll add, almost a bumper sticker statement for the audience or for those mm-hmm. to kind of remember is the magic number is six. If we can get to six breaths a minute magic happens performance-wise. When we get to 16 to 20 breaths a minute, we know that's rapid, shallow, and bad things are going to happen with executive thinking, problem-solving, abstract thinking, et cetera. So at the end of the day, if you can manage six breaths a minute, you're going to see performance, uh, I think, improve significantly. So That's interesting. I think the other thing, too, is and, and um, a Harvard professor, I've talked about this a bunch, uh, gave me some advice very early on in my sort of public speaking career. I mean, I've done public speaking forever, but like doing big keynotes and stuff. And she's like, you're, you know, you're going to have stress and, and you're going to be nervous, uh, but try instead of being nervous to say out loud, I'm excited. Um, and this, uh, and I know you talked to, I think it was Kelly McGonigal and, and I had her on the podcast about the sort of upside of stress. Uh, but that idea of, of positive self-talk and, and talk out loud um, and things like writing it down, the, these are all part of this process of engaging all those aspects of you, uh, what it means to be a human being, um, and sort of successfully performing in a variety of contexts. Totally agree. I think, look, what you're talking about fundamentally at the beginning, too, is what we call in my world the reframe, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two different types of people in a high-performance leverage situation. There are those that say, oh, my gosh, I'm nervous. And there are those who are experiencing the same thing and say, oh, my gosh, this means my body's ready. I'm ready for something. And it's a slight reframe, but the, the effects are markedly different. Well, we talk a lot about the effects of positive self-talk, and it, it sounds sort of like a cliché. Right, but actually, your your mantras work. Your negative self talk starts to creep in. I can't do this. I'm nervous. I messed up before, and it's so simple, but it, but also hard to do is just to go. No, I can do it. I've done it before. I'm really good at it, uh, and and that is another aspect of calming your stress in the moment. Uh, another thing I want to talk to you about, because you talk about this quite a lot in the book, and it dovetails with, with our work. So when we get brought in to a company and they want their employees to be more creative, and that's a thing that they come to a, a, create, a creative company like ours. And one of the things we say, well, um, one of the things we know about creative work is um, you have to have an abundance of ideas. This is the whole idea behind Yes And, is like allow seemingly stupid ideas to exist, uh, which also means you have to embrace failure. Um, and so we literally have ga- we have exercises which require you to, on the spur of the moment, do a terrible stand-up joke, and uh, we make everyone in the audience clap no matter what, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, do you again. And guess what? At a certain point, you stop worrying about whether a thing's going to be good or bad, and you just sort of come out with it. And guess what? Your joke might be a little bit better, and, and you might find make, make some discoveries. And you talk in the book, you say, quote, success is a lousy teacher, failure is a great, great one, end quote. How do we, I mean, this is, you're talking about like coming from the work with the Navy SEALs and work with these top performers, and yet corporate America feels that uh, this idea of embracing failure, they they might talk about in a theoretical manner, but it's very hard to get them to embrace it uh, within the context of of, uh, everyday business. But if if you want your people to be innovative and to be creative, this exists. Failure exists no matter what. And, and that, that you seem to talk about that a lot. 
Yeah, so this could be <laughs> we could go down a rabbit hole, and I, I mean, this Let's is a topic where I I get on my soapbox for sure. I mean, I, I think I think the, at the end of the day, we want people to start to embrace a philosophy of at least micro failures, meaning. Yeah. We all live in a comfort bubble, whether it's socially, romantically, physically, we all have those bubbles. And and I think to push people to work, and here's the key word, incrementally outside of that bubble and be okay with failing and iterating. Um, you know, I don't want to name drop companies, but there are some companies out there that are really fantastic. And if they don't think they're failing, they're not learning. They're not iterating fast enough. Um, and I think Again, without getting out outside of my swim lane and my area of expertise, we're in a very complex world that is getting harder every day. Uh, we have to answer a lot of issues, right, geopolitically and climate-wise, et cetera. We're going to need people who can take risk and are comfortable kind of thinking and working outside of the box. And I think educationally, the system in general, we need to be okay. Look, do I want people to fail? Of course not. Do I want people to fail when they're 25 for the first time ever? No. No. I want them to fail early and have micro failures and be able to learn from that. There's a great quote, and then I'll turn it over to Alan, that, you know, I either win or I learn. And I think this is true, right? At some level, I think all of us, and you could, I would ask your audience to, to ask themselves the same question. I know for me, if I look back at my career, I learned a heck of a lot more from my failures than I did my successes. And I think most people will say the same. So, Alan? Yeah, and I um, I did experience that firsthand, Kelly. I worked 16 years at Google. Uh, I wrote a couple of books about the company's management and leadership principles. And in both those books, we talked about failure and, you know, fail fast, don't throw good money after bad, mm-hmm. learn from failure, and don't attach a stigma to it. It's, 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 those, are, those are the rules. Uh, and... We would talk about that, and I, I frequently spoke on the topic to our clients and partners who would come visit us in Mountain View. So I, I probably talked about that to, you know, 500, 1,000 different companies around the world, and it's one thing to say it. It's a very hard thing to do it, and I think maybe it's attached to the word itself, like embracing failure, like, yeah, I don't want to fail. Um, I had one, uh, a leader at Google tell me, uh, and the way she put it was, go into white spaces. Yeah. Look into areas where maybe something needs to be done or something new needs to be tried. And I think Google was very good at this in the first part of the company's life where um, people were not as territorial. There was just too much to do. So if you saw something that needed doing and you had a new idea, you were highly encouraged to go after it. And, you know, maybe you would fail, but most likely it would not be a huge spectacular failure. But it would be something small. And, you know, we had this concept of um, 20% projects, which was really the idea was as long as you're doing your job well, you can go do some other stuff. Uh, go out, try out other things. Go work with other teams. And all that is, is, you know, they were not funded. It's not like, hey, it's a suggestion box and we're going to give you money because now there's a cost of failure. Yeah. But if you're just trying something, you don't have any budget, you just got a couple of people together, you're trying some ideas, not that much of a cost and um, a a huge potential upside. So I think that's, we talk about this in in the book, in the parenting section, in the mindset section, it's not embrace failure, but it's, it's go ahead and say yes and take on some risks and whether you, and then you will not fail. You will succeed or you will learn. Yeah. We we have a whole failure chapter in in the yes and book. And I remember after 
that was published. Uh, yeah, it was a few months later, and my wife Anne's like, you know, I call it risk now. I kind of yeah, I like words matter, and 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 how people respond to words, and there's just le- less stigma with risk. People don't understand like, oh yeah, you're gonna take a risk, okay, and bravo, you know, kind of thing. But it's like, yeah, and and let's maybe understand the fact that most of those will fail, and and that's okay. I think in the same way too, a lot of what we sell at Second City is play, but God forbid I call that what we do play to the corporate audience because the checks will stop getting signed. Um, when in fact we, and there's good science behind this about how we evolve and the need for, especially we talked about, we've talked about, you talked about in the book parenting. I talked about that a, bu- a bunch. Like I, God, I want my kids out in the world getting scrapes and bruising and playing and making all those discoveries. That's how they figure this stuff out by bumping, bumping into things. And when we overprotect them and, and we, you, to your point, you don't want them having their first big, problem or mistake happen when they're in their 20s it's like where where can they work it out when it's like the stakes are not so high and that's just like i I think it was really uh, one of the stories that really hit me uh a lot was when you talked about um it was a a a seal uh sniper chief um uh and he came to you because his three-year-old kept knocking over his glass of milk at the family dinner table and that talk a bit about that because i think that's a interesting Story. Yeah, so the mindset, I mean, this was a, a fantastic client of mine, and this story was was fantastic as well. So he was back from a very complex, very kinetic combat deployment. And the mindset of a, the chiefs in the Navy are essentially the backbone, back, backbone of the Navy. They, they're senior enlisted. They make everything work. They make uh, uh, anyhow, very, very valuable and integral position. Um, and the mindset of a Navy SEAL chief is, you know, when you're in a combat situation is to be very detail oriented, somewhat perfectionistic, right? If someone makes a right turn instead of a left or gets ammunition, people come home in a body bag. So there's, there's zero, you know, room for error. And then one comes back from deployment to a lovely wife and a, and a young child and the young child is spilling milk. And the expectation, the mindset is people should not spill milk. You know, my kid needs to be perfect. And his wife, long story short, he blew up and nothing physical, but just kind of verbal frustration. His wife sent him to me. I'm well known among the teams as kind of the embedded psychologist to these guys. And and I just kind of, you know, in, inside of my own skin, inside of my own face, I'm smiling and saying, OK, this is, you know, we, we can attack this. This is easy. So we just changed the expectation. And I asked him to really just assume from this point forward every every day when he was brushing his teeth in the morning that my son is going to spill milk twice today. So essentially what I was trying to do is extremely basic, just reset a baseline. Uh-huh. Um, we won't even get into the developmental issues of probably the kid was doing it to sequester attention and et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, long story short, you've already alluded to the story in the book. Uh, you know, within within a week, the, the kid stops sp- spilling milk. Um hmm. And, you know, he brings me this bottle of whiskey as, as a, as a thank you to my office. And I think we kind of joke that, you know, I was so tempted to, to, you know, to spill the whiskey to see what he, how he would respond, but I didn't. So my point is it's about mindset. It's about resetting expectations depending on the role that you play as well. So. Yeah, we interviewed uh, uh, Eric Barker, who wrote a great book called Plays Well with Others. And the first story, the origin story, is about a hostage negotiator who explicitly learned not to bring his work techniques home with him for spousal arguments. They do not work. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, I was like, I don't know about that, but yeah, I, I get that. Like, she just wants you to take the garbage out. Take the garbage out. 
<laughs> we talked about this, the importance of roles, right? Really yeah. in the mindset section as well, like identifying the top four to six roles that we all play and then identifying the key words for the mindset you think you need to perform that role and then transition appropriately. So, Alan, I think this is this is this is a cultural bias that, that we have when when we talk about people. We want them to be one thing, you know, and it's like if you waver from that, you're like, and we're not one thing. You know, when when we are a spouse is different than when we are a leader, which is different than when we're a follower, which is different sometimes when we're a teammate. And it just feels like it's very hard to get folks out of that sort of cultural thing of consistency being so important for the most inconsistent beings in the world, which are human beings. Well, Eric alludes to talks about the, the fact how your roles change. And you just need to be conscious of that. And, um, you know, I was thinking through as you, was, as you were telling your story, my wife and I had an argument last night about, of all things, a Christmas tree. Because <laughs> she likes a different type of tree than I do. And, you know, we're, we're each other's second marriage. And uh-huh. so we were sort of in charge of Christmas trees. But now our roles have changed mm-hmm. in charge of Christmas trees in our first marriage. And, you know, you just need to be conscious of that, of, of how, you know, how things change. And, and you talked earlier about um, yes and and humor and playfulness. And I actually think that's really important because when we're talking about roles and mindset and failure and so on, most of the time we are not in kinetic on the battlefield sort of uh, situations where failure, you cannot fail. Usually there's a very low cost to failure. And one way I think to communicate that is through levity. I used to help teach a course at the Stanford Business School. I was just one of the teaching assistants on humor and purpose in leadership. And the students often mistook um, our title about humor and that they had to be funny. And no, the situation is not that you have to be funny, but you do need to maybe take things a little lightly and show that to your team that this is the most of this stuff really doesn't matter. We had in our, um, in our book on Bill Campbell, Trillion Dollar Coach, he had a habit of cheering very loudly, like overdoing it. Um, like you talked about uh, just cheering a joke, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. And, and that does have an infectious uh, quality to it that brings other people around. And cel- it helps with celebrations. But now that we're talking about it, I think it also helps with people understanding, hey, you didn't really fail. It's okay. Yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's again, and, and we've worked at Stanford, too, with Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis' uh, humor yeah. performances, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the class, yeah. That's the class, yeah. So so uh, my wife and I have uh, lectured in there a couple times, and we're, we're part of the book. Um, but I think in, in, in our conversations with, with the, that team, uh, it's, it's also saying, like, this stuff is a superpower. Like, look at the amount of money that is spent on those Super Bowl ads that are supposed to be funny. Uh, and the ones that work are the ones that, that don't. And then I'm always shocked by the fact that it's like, did you have any professionals in the industry actually work on this? And I think we sort of somehow think, oh, well, that's just magic people do that. And so much of Eric, this book is, is about, well, it's not really that at all. These are principles of uh, physiology and psychology and, and, and human potential and flourishing. And I mean, you talk about, you know, being in nature and awe and all these things that we know, which, which make this up. But because it's wrapped in a mythology of the United States military, I think you understand that someone's going to look at this maybe in, in a way that they, if it was that softer book. That seems so woo-woo, you know, that they would never look at it. And it's like, nope, this is this is things we know. And, and that's precisely uh, 
Look, we we interviewed 32 people, and a lot of those people are extremely well-known names doing incredible things. And there's a reason. There's a method behind the madness. Like, we wanted the audience or the reader to see, wow, that person is doing these things. I can do that, too. It's not hard. Um, I think too many times we're all overthinking. And I'm not trying to downplay real stressors that are in people's lives, Um, you know, having navigated through a pandemic and economic issues and all of the, you know, we're going to continue to face adversity. It's a constant. So I do think that some levity and just some empirical based, evidence based things that we can apply and navigate through this. Anyone can do this. Anyone can do this. I think we've established the three of us are all sports fans, right? So um, I am uh, a soccer fan, huge soccer fan. Uh, My brother was an all-state goalie. Uh, So, and I know I often talk about the, like, I want to have uh, people work for me who have a bias for action, that that's something. But then there's a thing called action bias. Um, I was somewhat blown away by the stats you have around goalkeeping and penalty kicks. (laughs) Can you guys... Take me through this, because I did tell my wife about this, and she's like, oh, wow, that actually makes sense. Alan, you want yeah, to go? We talk about, yeah, we, well, we talk about action bias and how that's part of our, our chapter about process. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the, the, the core insight of the chapter is that the best performers focus on their process and not the outcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you're a, a goalkeeper, and you let in a penalty kick. Well, well the, the stat that you're talking about exactly was that there's a bias towards action. Yeah. So when they're, as the, um, the kicker is approaching the ball, most keepers will commit left or right. That's yep. their bias towards action. I got to do something. And the stats have shown that actually the best outcomes are when they just stay in the middle and they wait and they observe. And, but they have this bias toward action. And again, this more generally applies to this concept of you have a bad outcome. I, uh, I make an error on a baseball field. I, I, uh, I give a, a bad sales presentation. You immediately focus, okay, that's a bad outcome. I need to make a bunch of changes. And you want to blow up your process. And the, actually what the best performers do is just the opposite. Yeah, I can add to that. I mean, there's like, look, everything in the everything is measurable, right? We may need to, to creatively figure out ways to measure certain things, but everything can be measured. Now, you're bringing up the sport vertical. Within sport, everything is an open source statistic. Yeah. Right. As Alan said, whether it's a baseball player making an error, a football player statistics, I think for the best wide receivers in football, they drop one pass out of every 30 ish that hit their hands statistically. So if I make an error, right, or we're talking about a keeper, for example, mm-hmm. the, the impulse is an impulse toward action, towards doing something. When in fact, what we try to get athletes at the high, high levels to understand is we all have our own mean and we're going to. We're going, to, we're going to slump at times and we're going to have abundance at times. And idea, nothing is you know really up and down. It is going to be these little micros up, micro ups, micro downs, et cetera. So there's a term called regression to the mean. Yeah. So when I'm slumping, the worst thing I can do is change too much too fast because generally speaking, to use the baseball analogy or football analogy, I may drop two passes that come to my hands. But that means, statistically speaking, I may catch the next 55 to 60. So it's really important to iterate carefully and don't to really put the reins on making change for change's sake and really look at the numbers as a, as a statistic as well. Regression to one's mean. 
It's interesting. I'm reading uh, my next podcast is with a scientist who wrote a book on workaholics and workaholism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I didn't realize that is a, a thing that those folks do, which is just load up their schedules. Uh, because they're afraid of unstructured time will make it appear that they're not working. And, and that, that jives with what, what you're talking about, and they, and they get overfilled, and it doesn't lead to better performance. In fact, it's, it's, it's uh, often the opposite. But it is that, that they've bought into this like hustle culture idea. Um, and I just, it, it's, it's so funny because it's, like, it, it's terribly obvious that you are, as a keeper, because you can't move until the ball's hit. You will never get there quicker, left or right. It's just, it's, it's luck, right? And so, and I know when you talk about Carly Lloyd too, which is like when she missed that sort of let Jerry Pelly kick, just that I'm not going to change my process anymore. Cause you can see it, right? When they run up and, and, and when they're missing the kick is that they've just split second. They thought they were going right in the last minute they go left. Right. And it's that, and, and the process, again, we talk about process all the time at Second City. We have a very specific process for creating those shows, which has been successful for 65 years. And the only time it hasn't been successful is when we throw out the process. Amateurs focus yeah. on outcome. Professionals focus on process. It's just that simple, right? And actually in the Carly story, um, we talk about her mindset, but you're talking about she missed a penalty kick in the 2011 World Cup finals. Yeah. And the U.S. ended up losing the match to Japan, I believe. Mm -hmm. And she did change one critical component of her process, which was that from that point forward, she decided she was going to decide which side of the net she was going to aim for before she got there to put the ball down. That's because right. in that 2011 kick, she talked about she put the ball down and she wasn't certain. She let the noise get to her. She let the pressure get to her. So she, did, she changed one key aspect there. Yeah, um, I love that. We, we, we tell this great story uh, in our process chapter about uh, uh, another athlete who was given some um, uh, coaching from a barista at Starbucks. And this person immediately goes to their coaches and says, hey, I got this feedback. I need to change this. And this is sort of our poster child of what not to do. Mm -hmm. This person was performing poorly at the moment and wanted to change their process based on unvetted, um, unvalid expertise. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the coaches sort of set this person straight. But, um, again, that's, that's where you, you want action bias. You need to kind of quiet your action bias and think about your process. In a moment, I'm going to ask you each for a yes and story. But before we do that, you do talk late in the book about gratitude. And this is, was a major part of the work that we did with the behavioral scientists at the University of Chicago was the overwhelming power of, of gratitude. And so, so you know, the, the entire yes and concept can, can be boiled down to the idea of being um, grateful for someone's idea and, and building upon that, which also uh, allows them to be seen, which is such a powerful thing for human beings and creates such a foundation for, for creative work. And so I'm curious, Eric, and, and, and for you, Alan, too, if you think back to your Google days and Eric, for your work, when did gratitude pop up or was it something that you only sort of saw when you were observing those experiences later in life? Because that, for me, I didn't really understand the concept of gratitude until I was decades into this work. Are you talking about personally or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for me, I, I you know, it's a fantastic question. I think for me, it happened right after my seer tour so when i i i was i went from seer did the marcus latrell repatriation uh and then i was uh by name requested to be the first psychologist at buds where where seals are or you know the screen made etc developed 
And that's when I realized like a kid in a candy store, like, my God, my, my professional life is on a really incredibly cool trajectory. And like, I'm here, the work that these men and by the way, women support staff for the SEAL teams. Again, I, as I stated, stated earlier, probably the most relevant, meaningful work and most humans, most Americans won't know what these warriors are doing. So I, that's when I became very grateful to my professional side. I've always had a sense of gratitude for my family, my wife of almost now 30 years and my kids. Oh. So, but I would say it, it, it came in huge stride kind of midway through my naval career. And then I transitioned professional sport and it's just been like, oh my God, this is, life is pretty good. So, yeah. Great. Alan, how about you? Well, um, I joined Google kind of mid-career and I had worked here in Silicon Valley for five different startups and three of them were failures. Yeah. Two were successes and, and that was good, but I had always fancied myself. I was a startup guy. Maybe I would start a company myself one day and that was kind of my self-image. And then I turn around and I'm, you know, mid forties with a couple of kids and not really doing very well. And I get this opportunity to go to Google and it was just such a wonderful place. And people would say, well, you know, what's it like to be on Google? You know, what's it like at Google? And, and it's like being, I would, I would tell them it's like being on the winning team. And, and it's, I was so grateful to be on the winning team, not just because we were winning, but because we were a team and that creates a, just a great feeling of camaraderie and positivity. And I was, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I had been through a lot of crappy workplaces Yeah. and, uh, I had had to totally readjust what I wanted out of my career. I wasn't going to be a startup CEO. Mm -hmm. I was going to be a middle manager at some giant company and I was incredibly grateful for it. I love it. All right. We always end the podcast by yes, asking our guests for a yes and story. Alan, I'll start with you. Do you have a yes and story for us? Uh, well, they're, they're kind of related. Um, I was working at Google. I was there a few years. And one day um, we get a, a, an email. My friend Jonathan and I, who was my boss, we get an email from Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO. And Eric said, hey, I saw this, uh, this talk that Jonathan gave. It was an internal talk. And I think we should write a book about it. What do you guys think? And, you know, I could have said, yeah, let's let the PR do that. You know, I've never written a book. And what I immediately did was I responded, yes, and hell yes, let's go do it. And I had never written a book before. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I said, yes, let's go for it. And, and uh, that brings me to book number three. I meet this guy, uh, Eric Potterat, after he gave a talk at Google. And I thought, why not? Gave him a call, said, hey, let's write a book. So those are my, uh, my related yes and stories. That's awesome. Eric, do you have one for us? I do. Uh, I was, uh, as I told you before, I did my internship and I did my three-year obligated payback. And I, was, I had already announced that I was going to get out of the Navy. I'd kind of checked that box. Um, and the detail of the person who kind of is in charge of careers, I'd filed my paperwork to get out. And they had offered a department head position at a naval hospital in southern Spain. Um, and I, my wife here, my wife had a job at the time here in San Diego. Uh, we had a one and a half year old daughter at the time, obviously grandparents and the whole nine yards for our daughter. Um, and I was really leaning out towards, no, I've, I'm, I, we're going to stay here. Wife's career kid. I'll just, you know, become a performance psychologist, clinical psychologist here in San Diego. And long story short, my wife and I went to dinner 
uh, really thought about this and opted. I won't give you all the boring details, but opted for her to take a leave of absence. We fought through the guilt of saying yes and pulling our one and a half year old daughter to go live in a foreign country. Um, and it ended up, the, the answer was yes. And it ended up to this day to be the best three and a half years of our lives. You could ask my wife as well. It's We traveled to 19 countries. We lived out in Spain, out in town. Um, my daughter came back bilingual and just incredible memory. So I, yes, and amazing things happened. I love that. that. Dan Pink's last book, which is all about regret, talks about the fact we rarely regret uh, the things we do as much as we regret the things that we don't do. And, that, exactly. and that's the idea behind yes and, which is our, our inclination, behavioral economics tells us this, is to do no or say nothing. So what happens uh, when you just try to, like, no, let's 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 try a thing and, and, and see what happens. And, and again, you are going to fail a lot of the time. That's Major League Baseball players who don't hit the ball 70% of the time are 300 hitters. <laughs> they are failing all the time. So I love this book so much. It is called Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. Eric Potterat and Alan Eagle, thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you so much for having us. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive From the dungeon No one survives 